The Cannabis Heals Me Podcast, Episode 46. You're listening to the Cannabis Heals Me Podcast, where we explore the real stories of real people who have discovered the profound healing properties of the cannabis plant in their own lives. Find more at CannabisHealsMe.com. Hey guys, save the date. Friday evening, July 26th, Cannabis Educator Amanda Hughes Munson is joining us in Lufkin, Texas for Cannabis Conversations. We'll release further details as we get them on the event, but go ahead and pencil that date on your calendar. You won't want to miss Cannabis Conversations Friday, July 26th in Lufkin, Texas. Welcome back, everyone, to the Cannabis Heals Me podcast. This is your host, Rachel Kennerly, and we're coming at you once again from the Storybook Inn Studios. I hope you guys have had a chance to listen to Monday's episode with Josh Raines. If you haven't, then I highly recommend you go back and listen to that. I learned things about the military in that episode that I never knew, ever. So it was really an educational experience for me. And again, if you haven't listened to that, you need to go back and listen to episode 45 with Joshua Raines. Thank you everyone who has been telling three people about the podcast. We greatly appreciate your support and the fact that you believe in the podcast enough to share it with other people. So for those of you who are new to the Cannabis Heals Me podcast, we have a Tell Three People Challenge. We ask our listeners to tell three people every week about the podcast. And if you're feeling really spunky, then let one of those people be someone who is either on the fence about cannabis prohibition or is still a strong supporter of cannabis prohibition. This show helps you lay out a strong case for why cannabis should be legalized. So I think if you will listen to the episodes, you'll get some pretty good ideas on how to defend your ideas that cannabis shouldn't be illegal and that the government really shouldn't be telling us what we can and can't put in our body. So tell three people about the podcast, and I think you'll be surprised at the feedback that you get. I have been surprised that more people have been in support of this project than against this project. And these are personal friends and family that I have a relationship with that I would have never thought would come around to the notion of cannabis being legal or cannabis being used as medicine. So tell three people about the podcast and we would sincerely appreciate that. Also, if you haven't done so already, go out and give us a rating or a review on your favorite podcast app. We really appreciate the feedback that we get from people. And if you give us a review, we will read your review on the air. And the reason I'm asking you to rate or review the show is because it gives our analytics a boost and it gives the algorithms a boost. And your podcast app will actually recommend this show to other people who might be interested in this particular topic or maybe just a topic related to health. So if you give us a rating and review over there on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever podcast app you're using, just give us a rating or review over there so that we can boost that algorithm. So I told you guys on Monday that today's episode is going to be a little different than our normal Thursday episode. The reason is I've got a compressed week this week. I've got to be out of town for three days and I just didn't have time to get someone interviewed 
get it edited, and get it published. So instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read you Dr. Ron Paul's The Case for Drug Legalization. I told you guys a few weeks ago that I went to an event that the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity put on called Winning the War on the War on Drugs. So this booklet that Dr. Paul put out back in 1988 was one of the perks I received as being in attendance for that event. So I'm going to pass that perk on to you guys. I'm going to read it for you today. And then if you enjoy what I read, if you want to go out and subscribe to our email newsletter, I'll actually email you a copy of the booklet as well. So if you go out to CannabisHealsBee.com, you can sign up for our email newsletter and you'll get a free copy of this booklet. If you're already subscribed to the newsletter, you've already gotten a copy of it. So go out and check your email for episode 46 and you're going to have a link that you can use to download this booklet. I will go ahead and warn you, this is my first attempt at trying to read an audiobook or try to create an audiobook type format. So I hope I don't butcher it up too bad, but I found the topic fascinating. So hopefully you guys will enjoy being read to as much as I enjoyed reading it. And if this is something that you enjoy, I'd love to get your feedback just so I can know, yes, we want more of this. No, don't ever do this again. You're a terrible reader. So send me an email, podcast at CannabisHealsMe.com. The Case for Drug Legalization by Ron Paul, M.D. Originally published in 1988 by the Ron Paul for President campaign. Republished in 2019 by the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. Today in Washington and on the campaign trail, Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and liberals, are calling for drastic action on drugs. The Reagan administration has made these substances a special issue, of course. From Nancy Reagan and her Just Say No to Ed Meese and his anti-money laundering, officials have engineered mammoth increases in government spending for anti-drug efforts and for spying on American citizens. The Assault on Our Privacy Our financial privacy has been attacked with restrictions on the use of honestly earned cash and bank surveillance that is sought to make every teller a monetary cop. In the name of fighting drugs, the central government has modernized its vast computer network and linked it with data files in states and localities, enabling the IRS, FBI, and other agencies to construct dossiers on every innocent American. In the Washington, D.C. of 1988, anyone exercising the basic human right to privacy is branded a possible criminal. This kind of 1984 think more appropriate to Soviet Russia than the USA has grown alarmingly since Reagan came into office. As human beings, we have the right to keep our personal and family finances and other intimate matters secret from nosy relatives. Yet the politicians, who are dangerous as well as nosy, claim the right to strip us bare. This dreadful development is foreign to our Constitution and everything America was established to defend. The politicians claim it has nothing to do with taxing and controlling us. In this, as in virtually everything else, the politicians are lying. In fact, I believe that the drug hysteria was whipped up to strengthen big government's hold over us and to distract Americans from the crimes of Washington and the addiction to big government that is endemic there. There is another way. Instead of spending tax money and assaulting civil liberties in the name of fighting drugs, usually couched in childish military metaphors, we should consider a policy based on the American tradition of freedom. And I know the people are ready. I'm traveling full-time now, all over the country, and wherever I go, 
I get the message loud and clear. Americans want to change and federal drug policy. They may wonder about the proper course, but I am convinced that here, as in all other areas of public policy, the just and efficacious solution is liberty. Drugs, legal and illegal. Alcohol is a very dangerous drug. It kills 100,000 Americans every year, but it is no business of government to outlaw liquor. In a free society, adults have the right to do whatever they wish, so long as they don't aggress or commit fraud against others. Tobacco is an even more dangerous drug. It kills 350,000 Americans a year in long, lingering, painful deaths. As a physician, I urge people not to smoke, but I would not be justified in calling in the police. Adults have the right to smoke, even if it harms them. From the decades-long government propaganda barrage about illegal drugs, we could be excused for thinking illegal drugs even more dangerous than alcohol and tobacco. In fact, 3,600 people die each year from drug abuse. That's less than 4% of those doomed by alcohol, only about 1% of those killed by tobacco. Yet we are taxed and are supposed to undergo extensive other restrictions on our liberty to support a multi-billion dollar war on drugs, which, like all other wars since the revolution, benefits only the government and its allied special interest at the people's expense. Not satisfied with the present level of violence, politicians are now advocating strip-searching every American returning from a foreign country, jailing people caught using marijuana in their own homes, turning the army into a national police force, giving customs agents the power and weapons to shoot down suspected aircraft, and transforming America into a police state, all because not enough Americans will just say no. Politicians want to mandate random urine drug tests for all employees, public and private, in sensitive jobs. Leaving aside the problem of defective laboratories and tests, the high number of false positives, and the humiliation of having to urinate in front of a bureaucrat, what about the concepts of due process or innocent until proven guilty? One of the great American legal traditions coming to us from the common law is probable cause. Because of the experiences our ancestors had with the British oppressors, it is not constitutional to search someone without probable cause of criminal activity. And this is a very intimate search indeed. If this sort of search is justified, why not enter homes at random to look for illegal substances or unreported cash? Not even the Soviets do that. Yet American politicians advocate something similar with our bodies. The Reagans, emulating Stalin, have even praised the chilling example of a child informing on his parents and urged others to follow his example. The 1980s war on drugs has increased the U.S. population by 60%, while street crime has zoomed. 70% of the people arrested for serious crimes are drug users, and all the evidence shows that they commit these crimes to support a habit made extremely expensive by government prohibition. Urban street crime, which terrorizes millions of Americans, is largely the creation of the U.S. drug laws. That alone is reason enough for legalization. Drug Prohibition and American History All the drugs now illegal in the United States were freely available before the passage of the Harrison Act of 1914. 
Until that year, patent medicines usually contained laudanum, a form of opium, which is why, at least temporarily, they were indeed good for all ailments of man or beast. First, the feds, with the help of organized crime, restricted narcotic drugs to prescription only. Thus, physicians were still able to treat addicts. Then the feds made that illegal, drastically raising the cost of drugs with the results we all know. Yet about the same percentage of the population abused these drugs in 1888 as in 1988. In other words, some people will abuse drugs just as some people will abuse alcohol, no matter whether they are legal or illegal. All their government can do by outlawing these items is vastly increase their cost and vastly decrease our liberties. But this is no thing to the government. Government officials, from Washington grandees to the county sheriff, get rich off bribes and corruption, as during Prohibition, and the innocent pay through zooming crime and lessened freedom. This does not mean, obviously, that illegal drug use is a good thing. As a physician, a father, and a grandfather, I despise it. My wife Carol and I have worked for years with a volunteer organization in our hometown that fights teen drug and alcohol use but we do it through moral and medical persuasion. Government force can't solve problems like this. It can only make them worse and spread the burden to many innocent Americans. The federal government began the modern war on drugs as part of its effort to destroy the 1960s anti-war movement since so many of its people used marijuana, often as an anti-establishment statement. For the feds, this was a way to jail domestic enemies for non-political crimes. At the urging of the Nixon administration, which spied on and tax-audited so many Americans for opposing it, Congress greatly escalated the drug war in 1969. Given all the evidence that the CIA had been involved in drug running since the 1950s, as pointed out by Jonathan Quitney of the Wall Street Journal and others, they might not have liked the competition either. Today, the Fed spend almost $4 billion a year through the Customs Service, the Coast Guard, the Drug Enforcement Agency, the FBI, and the IRS. State, county, and local law enforcement add billions more. Despite all this firepower today, one in five Americans from the ages of 20 to 40 uses illegal drugs regularly. Millions over 40 join them, and last year, 824,000 Americans were arrested for it, including Elvie Masika of Hollywood, Florida. This elderly widow was thrown in jail for possession of four marijuana plants, even though her doctor has said that without marijuana, glaucoma will destroy her eyesight. All over America, the prison population has increased 60% in the last five years, largely due to drug laws. In spite of the immense sums of money spent on the crusade, drug use has not decreased. Heroin use has stayed level, while cocaine consumption has vastly increased, with about 5 million people regularly using it. During the 1930s and 1940s, Harry Anslinger, the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, whipped up the first drug fervor. Today, the demon is crack. To Anslinger, marijuana created drug fiends. And as a result, government violated civil liberties on a wide scale and imposed draconian prison sentences for the possession of small amounts. 
The result was not, of course, the elimination of marijuana use, just as the earlier prohibition failed to stop Americans from drinking alcohol. That noble experiment, attempted by constitutional amendment and rigorous regulation to ban the sale of alcoholic beverages, the temperance movement called alcohol the main cause of violent crime and broken families and called for rooting it out. The result of the war on drugs of the 1920s was disaster. Gangs of bootleggers replaced ordinary businessmen as sellers of the now-forbidden substance. Notorious criminals such as Al Capone achieved their status through their control of the illegal trade in drink, just as criminals today derive much of their revenue from the market for illegal narcotics. Of course, drinking among the public did not disappear. The adulterated and poisoned alcohol led to many deaths. However unsuccessful they were at stopping drinking, government agents did succeed in suppressing civil liberties. We owe wiretapping to the Prohibition era, and warrantless searches of private homes were common. Some federal agents, not content with what they viewed as an overly slow judicial process, destroyed supposed contraband on their own authority. And as happens today, government raids on bootleggers often resulted in shootouts with the innocent caught in the crossfire. A government policy calling for total victory at whatever cost over something many people wanted meant inevitable death and destruction. Unseen Effects of Government Intervention Today and then, one of the unexpected results of outlawing desired substances is to increase their potency. A uniform tax on gasoline of so many cents per gallon promotes the production of higher octane gas, which sells for more and gives the consumer better performance. A uniform tax on the danger of going to jail imposed on making and selling alcohol during Prohibition stimulated the production of such items as white mule whiskey with twice the kick, as well as of often dangerous substitutes such as synthetic gin made of wood or denatured alcohol. It also favored the production of whiskey itself over beer and wine. During Prohibition, distilled spirits accounted for more than 80% of the total underground sales. Before and after the criminalization of drinking, the figure was 50%. In the legal drug market, the trend is toward lower potency, as with low-tar filtered cigarettes, decaffeinated coffee, and light beer and wine. But with illegal drugs, as with alcohol during Prohibition, the reverse is true. Stronger cocaine, heroin, and marijuana have led to more deaths, as have the adulterated products which kill most of the people listed dying from drug overdoses. Designer Drugs But what if the feds could seal the borders tight and prevent the domestic cultivation of all illegal plants? We would see a massive increase in an already visible trend, designer drugs. These chemically engineered artificial substances are up to 6,000 times as strong as morphine, and their toxic effects are bizarre and unpredictable. They are far more dangerous than heroin or cocaine, yet the government is in effect stimulating their production by focusing on their competition. Unlike natural narcotics, a few pounds of designer drugs could supply the entire U.S. market for a year and they can be manufactured by the same clandestine chemists who now extract morphine from opium and convert morphine to heroin. What if we tried legalization? When the American people got fed up with their rights being trampled, they organized and supported candidates who pledged to erase the Prohibition Amendment from the Constitution. 
When they succeeded, most states legalized the distribution and sale of liquor, and the criminal gangs dominating the trade went out of business. The repeal of a bad law accomplished what the indiscriminate use of force and tax money could never do, the end of criminal trade in liquor. It would be no different for drugs. If the use and sale of drugs were not illegal, the power of the crime syndicates now controlling these substances would disappear. These organizations derive their power and influence only from the fact that their business is illegal. Though the benefits in the destruction of criminal organizations more than justify an end to government intrusion in this area, a policy of decriminalization would have many other good results. For one thing, the users of drugs who now commit violent crimes to pay for their fix would have much less incentive to do so. Prices of drugs, now subject to open competition, would drop sharply. Since narcotics are downers, addicts would have no incentive to act any different from Bowery alcoholics. Instead of raving criminals, they would become street people. Even addicts would be better off. The major cause of death is not from drugs' narcotic properties. It's from poison drugs and adulteration. It is impossible for the user to know how much he is taking. Illegality causes these problems. The drug user can hardly ask his pusher for lab results. A legal market would be an entirely different affair. Just as a customer in a liquor store need not wonder if his whiskey contains poison or what the percent of pure alcohol is, the consumers of drugs would no longer face a danger that is 100% made in Washington. Also, the use of contaminated needles by narcotics users has been a key factor in the spread of AIDS. Through the availability of sterile needles in a free and open market, decriminalization would help control the spread of this disease. But if we legalized the trade in narcotics, wouldn't we have many more drug addicts than today? Wouldn't a lower price increase demand? Leaving aside the forbidden fruit phenomenon, the fact that many people find something more desirable precisely because it is illegal, the law of demand does not tell us how much consumption will increase with lowered prices. In fact, the data show that consumption of drugs remains fairly constant under widely varying circumstances. Just as the sharply higher price of the escalated war on drugs has not lowered drug use during the 1980s, legalization would not increase it. Just as the availability of alcohol does not make everyone a drunkard, so the absence of criminal sanctions would not convert everyone into a drug user. Another important point, not all consumers of either alcohol or drugs use them at a problem level. Many people who use liquor are not alcoholics, and many users of drugs try them only occasionally. Most drug users are not addicts dependent on their daily use. What about children? Would decriminalization place drugs in the hands of children? No. In fact, outlawing them has done it. Because of the severe penalties inflicted on adult drug suppliers in the 1970s, criminal syndicates now use juvenile distributors. Youngsters, even if prosecuted, are tried in special courts which cannot impose severe penalties. Thanks to government, pushers now have every incentive to involve children in their business. Just as a free society properly has laws against selling liquor to minors, we would bar the sale of drugs to them. 
Law officials advocate legalization in private. A few years ago, a friend was a consultant to a gubernatorial campaign. To aid the candidate in forming his anti-crime policies, my friend assembled a group of top DAs. All were glad to help, but they also unanimously agreed, off the record of course, that nothing significant could be done about crime until drugs are legalized. They will never be legalized, said one famous prosecutor, because too many government officials make too much money off the drug trade. From the feds to the county sheriff, billions of dollars. These men were also furious because of spending priorities. Every dollar spent pursuing drug dealers and users who didn't aggress against the innocent was a dollar less available going after criminals. Narco-terrorism Bok Kwan Kim, a 49-year-old electrical assembly worker, lived peacefully in a tiny apartment with his wife, three daughters, and 78-year-old mother-in-law in Newark, California. Then late on the night of May 12th, nine narcotics police broke down his front door, handcuffed and beat him until he was unconscious, handcuffed his wife and shoved her to the floor as their daughters screamed, and ransacked their apartment. Not one piece of furniture was left unbroken. Every pillow or piece of upholstery was torn and emptied of its stuffings. All their dishes and porcelain were shattered. Only a picture of Jesus on the wall was left in one piece. Why? The narcotics police had gotten a false tip from an informer that Kim had a stockpile of amphetamines. Why the beating? The police said Kim had resisted the destruction of his home and few possessions. Kim is still in the hospital, and his daughters have nightmares every night. The head of the narcotics squad apologized, but noted that this is war. Yes, but war on whom? We now have Republicans and Democrats passing laws over the Pentagon's wise opposition to turn the military into narco-police, which arrests citizens. And if anyone's rights are violated, the military narcotics police are immune from suit. Under the government's so-called zero-tolerance program, boats and cars are confiscated right and left. Recently, a $3 million yacht was commandeered by the Coast Guard because a few shreds of marijuana were found in a wastebasket. The Coast Guard had boarded the vehicle despite there not being any probable cause of crime. The owner was not on board and his employees were transporting the ship. Who did the marijuana belong to? It didn't matter. A yacht, which an entrepreneur had worked all of his life to own, was stolen by the U.S. government and will be sold at auction. What's next? A house confiscated because someone finds pot in the garbage can? Now that the Supreme Court says police can search your garbage without a warrant. Mises on drug prohibition. Ludwig von Mises, the outstanding economist and champion of liberty of our time, as usual, summed it all up in human action. Opium and morphine are certainly dangerous habit-forming drugs, but once the principle is admitted that it is the duty of government to protect the individual against his own foolishness, no serious objection can be advanced against further encroachments. A good case can be made out in the favor of prohibition of alcohol and nicotine. And why limit the government's benevolent providence to the protection of the individual's body only? Is not the harm a man can inflict on his mind and soul even more dangerous than bodily evils? Why not prevent him from reading bad books and seeing bad plays, from looking at bad paintings and statues, and from hearing bad music? 
The mischief done by bad ideologies surely is much more pernicious, both for the individual and for the whole society, than that done by narcotic drugs. No paternal government, whether ancient or modern, ever shrank from regimenting its subjects' minds, beliefs, and opinions. If one abolishes man's freedom to determine his own consumption, one takes all freedoms away. Thank you very much to the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. You will find links to their website on the show notes for today's episode, which can be found at www.cannabishealsme.com slash 46. We'll be back here on Monday with another healing story. I hope you guys enjoyed today's format. Give me some feedback. Podcast at CannabisHealsMe.com. Have a great weekend. Hit the subscribe button and you'll never miss an episode of the Cannabis Heals Me podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, please consider leaving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or whatever podcast app you're using. Do you have a suggestion for a guest on Cannabis Heals Me? Send an email to podcast at CannabisHealsMe.com. We'd love to hear from you. Please do not take any information from Cannabis Heals Me or its guests as medical advice. Contact your licensed physician before taking cannabis or using it for medical treatments. 